This is the Epilogue audio experience. The understanding of the relationship amongst the genders between men and women and indeed across all genders. We have to really understand that in order for us to thrive as a community, as a species and as a planet, that we have to change our ways. Hi everyone, welcome to Where East Meets West, where we actually bridge the divide between cultures and we learn more about who we really are at a soul and at a core level. It's been my pure feeling and vision from I can remember that I've always wanted to see the world come together. And what best, uh, what better way for us to look at that and bringing together some of the most prolific Indian leaders and having a conversation with them about life and what drives them and moves them. We're happy to know that we're collaborating with Epilogue, who's a distributor of this show, and we have really been touched by their cooperation and just the way that they've been working. And where I'm in Washington, D.C., and so many of the shows and programs that we are distributing around the world, it makes you realize how small the world has become. My guest for today's segment is really profound and inspiring, and I'll tell you a little bit about who she is. Strategic innovator Malika Dutt is the founder and director of The Interconnected and has pioneered effective approaches of the social change through the founding of several nonprofits, including Breakthrough and Shatsaki for South Asian women. She has also provided transformational leadership in her roles as a program officer for human rights and social justice at the Ford Foundation's New Delhi office, the director of the Norman Foundation and associate director of the Center of Women's Global Leadership at Rutgers University. She has mastered the art of blending multimedia campaigns, cutting edge pop culture, social media and authentic community engagement to develop innovative campaigns and tools for teaching democracy and justice and bring awareness to end violence and discrimination against women. She's been on many major media outlets and we are so happy to be welcoming her on Where East Meets West. Malika Dutt, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Jenna, it's great to see you. Here, you know, we are two women who seems to be like on fire. We're just moving and moving. And I think we have something in common. We hate to see injustice. Was that always in you as a young girl? It was. It started out at a very personal level. I grew up in a joint family and there were three boys in the house. So my grandparents, my uncle, my aunt, my parents and I, we all lived in the same house. And Every time my brothers were allowed to do something that I wasn't allowed to do, or my grandmother would be trying to get me into the kitchen to learn how to cook, to cook while they were out playing cricket, I would revolt. So I grew up uh, quite a tomboy. And uh, so kind of feel like my feminism really started at a very young age. It moved then into, you know, the sense of real injustice around the family business was going to go to the boys. I was supposed to get married and go off and, you know, find my way through somebody else's home. Um, And that also felt really unjust to me. My grandmother ended up leaving the house that we grew up in to the three grandsons. And so 
you know, from a young age, I was just like, what is happening here? Uh, and I think that really fed my quest for justice, not just for women, but really as a value in and of itself. Interesting, because even though I'm an only child and I was raised with an Indian father and an African-Caribbean mother, and then in the USA eventually, because I came over when I was four, I would watch programs or I would see certain things and I would say, that's just not right what they're doing, you know? And it, either you're living in it or you're observing it and your, your gut feeling says, I don't know if that's right what they're doing or how they think a woman should be. Did you ever used to watch those television commercials like UNICEF or something and you would see these awful, awful scenes of people suffering and everything and you felt like you had to do something about it? Actually, you know, when I was growing up, there, we got television uh, pretty late in the story. So it, commercials were not something that I watched very much up until I got to the United States in 1980. And no, it wasn't. It wasn't commercials about things that were happening in other parts of the world. It really was a sense of my immediate community that moved me. So when I got to New York after graduating from Mount Holyoke College, um, what I started to see was little snippets in the Indian newspapers around violence in the home or, you know, they were code, there was coded language or like, you know, a woman was hurt or ended up in hospital without really explaining why. And so I and another friend of mine, Ananya, started to look at where women who were experiencing violence in the South Asian community could go. And there really wasn't any place in New York City. So that's when we started Sakhi for South Asian Women. And it was a coming together of a lot of us to create a safe space for women who were experiencing abuse in the family. And we began to do workshops and have conversations with temples and churches and mosques and community centers and really try and create an environment where if a woman reached out for help, she was met with a helping hand and not with judgment. From there, we built Saki up to really providing legal support, advocacy, uh, really fighting for the passage of the Violence Against Women Act, making sure that immigrant women's rights were protected in VAVA when it first came out. So that was really how my orientation around this started. I mean, when I got to Mount Holyoke, I was pretty feisty as well. I mean, there we were marching to get the U.S. out of Nicaragua and you know, fighting for divestment in South Africa and doing take back the night marches. And I feel like I was just um, kind of a, a, a rabble rouser in my DNA from the time that I popped out of my mommy's womb. That way, <laughs> it looks like you definitely <laughs> were. You were destined for that for sure. You know, there's a saying, you can take the man out of the country but you can't take the country out of the man. And you are known as a pioneer in using culture to change culture. What are the steps that you take for that process? When I continue to do work in the human rights space and on gender-based violence, I began to realize the enormity of the problem, right? So, I mean, we were, we were, it wasn't just a few pockets here and there. It wasn't just Indian women. It was a global pandemic. It was a global human rights pandemic. 
gender-based violence is a global human rights pandemic. And so I started to feel that we couldn't just keep providing legal remedies after somebody had been violated and hurt. Really, we needed to change the culture that led to these kinds of acts and abuses at the individual and systemic level. So I remember I was uh, working in India at the time in the early 90s, mid 90s, and I got really curious about pop culture, you know, and we have a very rich Bollywood music tradition in our country and MTV had just come. So I was like, hmm, how about a music video? So I started to work on a music video and a music album on women's dreams. And I pulled in all of these people from the entertainment industry in Bombay, because honestly, I had no idea what I was doing. But the idea was, how could you create a conversation that engaged people at a cultural level? And so Manke Manjire, it's been 21 years now. Manke Manjire was the album that we created. And we created a music video where we told the true story of a woman who walked out of a domestic violence situation. And in the video, she becomes a truck driver. And she's driving this truck and there are all these women on the back of the truck. And it went through the charts. It ended up becoming this huge hit. And this big conversation started in the public around violence. And we brought in issues of dowry and housework and inheritance and education through this album. And from there, I really understood how a conversation at the cultural level was important. So since then, I've really looked at how do you tell stories? How do you create a narrative that engages hearts and minds? And how do you get people to look at what we're currently doing and create an invitation for us to do something differently? Did you get it done? How was it through just the music and combining Bollywood with some of the narrative? Because you are right. I was on a platform with former secretary, um, Madam Albright, and one of the things that came up in the conversation here was um, it wasn't about the, the fact that there were crimes and atrocities being imposed on women. A lot of these developing countries or older cultures were saying, but it's cultural. Why is America interfering in our lives? This is just the way that we are. And I remembered, I remembered Madam Albright, don't say it's cultural. She said it's criminal. And I have this saying that I go around and I'll go, that's criminal. That's just not right. When I just know, don't tell me it's tradition. Don't tell me it's the way it's always been. Don't tell me it's cultural. If you impose harm on any one of God's children, it is criminal. So, you know, what were some of the processes like the music video, all of that happened? Tell us a little bit how it started to unfold, where there was more awareness and seeing how we could protect our daughters and our women. So, you know, the, the music video led to the creation of an organization called Breakthrough. So we created curriculum for school teachers using the music video. And we started to train teachers to begin conversations with young people, because a lot of times these attitudes around gender, around men and women, around the roles that we have in society start very young. So we started to work with school teachers. We started to do with workshops. And then we began to really create an ecosystem approach to addressing gender-based violence. 
this led us to really looking at what is the role of men? What is the role of all of the actors in society and coming together to transform the attitudes and the behaviors that cause harm? All of that led to finally, um, along the way, this incredible campaign that we created called Bell Bajau, which means ring the bell, through which we called on men to intervene with men when they were abusing women and girls. So the Bell Bajau campaign ended up having video vans. You know, we had vans that would go through villages, towns where we would be having conversations with the community around these issues. And because we were using cultural tools, because we were using storytelling, we would attract hundreds of people to the vans who wanted to engage, who wanted to know what was happening. And then we would create skits, we would play games, and we would have really important conversations around these issues. Around the same time as Belbajau, India passed the first comprehensive act against domestic violence. So we started to incorporate the law and what you could do and how you could access justice while doing the workshops. The challenge with saying it's criminal and not cultural is that the police and the judiciary and all of the law enforcement agencies are also culturally acting in certain ways towards gender and towards women and towards issues of violence. So you can seek justice, but end up getting further victimized by the very system that's supposed to protect you. And so for me, when I use the word cultural, it's not about, oh, this is our culture and therefore you can't talk about it. For me, culture is about a shifting, changing, evolving, vibrant way in which humans interact with one another. And nothing in culture is static. It is always changing. So for me, when I invoke the idea of culture, it's an invitation to create new norms. It's an invitation to create different values. It's an invitation to say, you know, we all want the best life for ourselves. We all want to thrive. How can we create a society where we can all thrive together? Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, tell me one particular inspiring story that you recall of a life that you have saved as a result of some of the programs that have been birthed through you. Um, there are so many stories to share. And, you know, I, I, I don't really think about this as saving lives. I think about this as all of us coming together to create a different way, a different uh, way of being. And um, so, you know, one of the uh, young women that I remember so uh, vividly is a young woman in Uttar Pradesh, a Muslim woman who participated in some of our trainings and then went home and took on her parents who were trying to get her older sister married before she finished college. Now her older sister really wanted to go to college. And you know, the general norm in the community was that you get married by a certain age and it's usually below the legal age of marriage. And so this young woman intervened, started bringing her parents to some of the workshops that we were doing 
convinced her father to not only send her older sister to college, got her father to become an advocate against early marriage in the community. And so the two of them together started to convene conversations, not only with community members, but with religious leaders, with government leaders. And she was so inspiring and the two of them together were so inspiring that we actually invited them to come to the United States to speak to people here. At the end of it all, she ended up getting a scholarship to go through college for her complete three years. And she's now, you know, one of these incredible advocates for equality and for women's rights. And her action not only inspired her parents to educate her sister, but her actions inspired her parents and especially her father to become an advocate himself. So, you know, and so we just have, so we have so many stories like that where um, it's a matter of creating an environment and really enabling people to come into the fullness of their voice and expression. Really, that's how I see it. I don't see us as saving anybody or rescuing anybody. It's really about creating the pathways for the fullest expression of who we are. And then we find our ways to justice. The irony in Indian culture is we worship more the goddesses than the god, you know, so to speak. So women have always actually um, have this reverence and this presence and I think this strength. And it's quite interesting to see what the gender has gone through, you know, for, for, for thousands of years. The Me Too movement um, has become very much of a big deal in the last few years. What are your thoughts about it? Is it a good thing? Absolutely. I think that the more we uh, blow the lid of the ways in which we behave badly and the ways in which the institutions that we've created, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the school, whether it's in the home, perpetuate and condone bad behavior, the more we keep blowing the lid of those things, the more possibility there is of us creating something else. For a very long time in India, in the United States, and indeed around the world, women were screaming about the levels of violence and harassment that we were experiencing and nobody would listen. It took decades and decades of organizing for a Me Too moment to actually happen. And without accountability, without accountability for people who are abusing others, without some way in which they are held accountable for those actions, whether it's in their employment, whether it's through the criminal justice system, you don't really see the kind of change that you need to see. And so I feel like Me Too, Black Lives Matter, all of these ways in which we rip the band-aids and we rip the veils apart and really look at what we are doing to each other. Look at the hierarchies that we've created that hurt and harm, that discriminate, that exploit. We need to see, we need to see clearly in order to create something else. And if we don't believe that something is happening, then 
we're not going to be willing to step into another way of being. I remember when I was creating Manke Manjire in the mid 90s and I was running around Bombay, you know, because I had been an advocate, I hadn't really experienced sexual harassment. I mean, I was, you know, I knew and I was fierce about all of these issues. I cannot tell you pretty much every single man. Well, I would say every single man. So many men kept propositioning me, kept saying, oh, you want, you know, you want free ads. Here's the quid pro quo. And because when I was creating Manke Manjire, I had another job. This was a passion project. It wasn't my livelihood, right? I could navigate all of that sexual harassment without having to make myself vulnerable. But that was the time that I realized how ubiquitous it was in the industry and how ubiquitous it was in the industries here as well in the United States, right? So I feel like Me Too, uh, Black Lives Matter, all of these movements that have allowed us to see clearly are creating the conditions for the collapse of the old so that we can emerge into a different way of being. Absolutely. Now, I'm sure you've noticed as well that some areas of the media are also trying to coin the Me Too movement as an excuse for women to seek revenge on men. Can you speak on that, please? Whenever you uh, shake up the status quo and whenever you challenge power structures, you will always receive pushback you will always have a blowback. I remember when I started Saki and we would walk around uh, the city during India Day parades or in Jackson Heights, you know, handing out leaflets or talking to people about domestic violence. I would get abused. I would get death threats. I would be told, why are you sharing our dirty laundry in the public? You're making immigrants look bad. You must have had a bad experience. This is your way of getting revenge, right? I mean, I got all of it. When I started working on immigrant rights and racial justice in the United States after 9-11, death threats, all kinds of insults, all kinds of, um, you know, generally threats. And so in hearing... Uh, people say, well, this is a way for women to get revenge. I have a response at multiple levels. First of all, you know, just at a very human visceral visceral level, I'm like, damn right. It's about bloody time. I mean, really? (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, the other part is like, of course, you're going to say this is about revenge because you don't want your power and your privilege to be taken away. Having said all of that, I also understand that it's a time of great vulnerability for people that, you know, things are shaking up. So you don't know how you're supposed to behave. Uh, Young people in particular are really struggling with new norms of behavior, how to be with one another. The call out culture can often take down people without any kind of due process. Um, without even being told what harm they've created. So certainly there's all kinds of consequences to this that I think become part of 
what happens when structures fall apart and change. And so I feel like we need to have a lot of compassion and a lot of love and a lot of fierceness and a lot of accountability in this time as we look at the old order crumbling and are still in the disintegration of it and trying to find the new ways of being. So, you know, for me, compassion has become a really important part of my journey and accountability always. For myself as well, I do harm. I mean, we've all been socialized in these systems. We all carry ways in which we perpetuate privilege, power, injustice. And I think that looking at ourselves in the mirror, taking accountability for ourselves, even as we are part of movements that advocate for well-being and for justice for everybody is a really important step to take. Said, you know, as you know, rape is such an uncomfortable word for anyone, whether you're a man or a woman. The rape case in Delhi a few years ago really highlighted the importance of seeing what India needs to do or even the rest of the world to protect our daughters, to protect our daughters. Um, things are still happening like that in India. However, do you think India is getting better in this area? Do you think the consciousness is changing and men, fathers, uncles, brothers, boys are beginning to recognize like women really are like our shaktis? How can we desecrate them? Um, it's a mixed bag, right? Like you said earlier, we've had hundreds of years of worshiping women and that hasn't stopped us from having one of the worst sex ratios in the world because, you know, we uh, get rid of female fetuses or kill young girls, right, when they are young. So, and, and it's certainly not just uh, the situation in India where women are treated as second-class citizens or that we need better equality. I mean, it's really a global issue. To come back to India, I feel like it's a mixed bag. We've certainly seen growing consciousness on the part of women. There is much, much more voice um, and demand around equality, around the recognition of equality, around equity issues. Um, very courageous, very brilliant young women who are at the front lines of demanding not just gender justice, but democracy and justice for everybody. Um, in some of the recent demonstrations we've seen, whether it's the farmers, whether it was around the Citizenship Act, we've seen huge numbers of women on the streets, organizing, leading the charge, and a greater acceptance of their voice and presence in social movements around the country. I mean, we've definitely seen that. In terms of the levels of violence, I think that as I was saying earlier, when you start disrupting the status quo, there is pushback, there is blowback. And um, there's also that happening in India. You know, there's a lot of men who are feeling very um, angry about equity and equality. And so levels of violence in some instances have increased. Um, you have more than a billion people. And that's why for me, um, the criminal has to go with the cultural, right? 
we can have all the laws in the world, but we can't lock up millions and millions and millions of men who are abusive. We have to change the attitudes. We have to change the norms. We have to change the understanding of the relationship amongst the genders between men and women and indeed across all genders. We have to really understand that in order for us to thrive as a community, as a species and as a planet, that we have to change our ways. I'm curious, do you know of a lot of um, organizations that are bringing men together to transform their consciousness in the way that they're seeing themselves as men and also their role with women. Because we have so many groups or so many organizations for women empowerment, you know, how to help women in particular um, situations of, of domestic violence and so on. But I, I keep saying, okay, but why do we have to learn? You know, we're not the ones that are doing the abuse here. Um, how many organizations do you know of are out there actually trying to educate young boys to become really noble and, and, and value-based men? Actually, um, quite a few. So Breakthrough works with boys and girls, men and women. And we've been working in schools in Haryana and Punjab and Uttar Pradesh and across the north. Uh, the northern part of India, and we have partnerships with the governments in these states. And so all of our work is with boys and girls always because of precisely what you said. It is about changing the way in which we understand these issues and really showing up um, differently. And so we just finished a huge initiative in the state of Uttar Pradesh, and we're looking at some of the results that are coming in. And we're seeing a huge shift in the attitudes of boys and girls. And the reason that it's important to do, um, to educate both boys and girls is because, you know, when you create a certain set of relationships, everybody then starts to operate within those structures and confines, right? So my grandmother made a decision to give our ancestral home to the three grandsons. My grandmother was a really tough woman. She was an Arya Samaji who was like out there, you know, um, a refugee from Pakistan to India, organized refugees in Delhi, had hundreds of people in her home. She was a really tough woman. And my, when my grandfather built the house, he put it in her name, right? And she still chose to give it to the boys. So I think that it's important for all of us to be in this transformation of consciousness, if you will. There's an amazing organization called the Men Engage Alliance, which is hundreds of groups from around the world that have come together to be in alliance around the issue of how do we transform masculinity? How do we transform ideas of masculinity so that we can remove the toxicity, we can remove the toxic parts and really allow for masculine, feminine, dynamic, magnetic, however you want to describe these aspects of us as humans, but really transform them so that we can live together in a different way. And the Men Engage Alliance has been around for more than a decade now. Um, and you know, there are organizations working in, there, I think, more than 600 organizations that are part of the alliance around the world. And so they're working at the community level, they're working at the national level, at the regional level, at the global level. 
And I hope more and more people will um, understand how important it is to be working with men and women and indeed all genders in doing this transformational work. Indeed. And it's called Men Engaged Alliance. Yes, Men Engage Alliance. Beautiful. Yes. Beautiful. So have you found it a little bit challenging, Malika, that um, with social media and the internet being so easily accessible to our young boys and young girls? So let's say you've got these great programs and you're trying to really, really guide them to grow into the best people that they can possibly be. Then they go on to their smartphones and there's porno, there is abuse, there is violence, there is, you know, sensationalism, there's Bollywood. And does it match? How have, how have you been navigating with the media, the internet, social media, with raising young boys and girls to, to be able to discern for themselves what is connected to their values and virtues and what will lead them into another dimension? The complexity of the human beingness is something that you're really raising, right? So, I mean, I think all of us have embraced these dualities. Like we are, there, these notions of good and evil exist across the board and within all of us. I mean, and certainly uh, in the Brahma Kumari tradition and the ways in which you have used contemplative practices to bring consciousness to another level, that is a part of the understanding that, you know, we hold all of these multiplicities and dualities and polarities and many, many parts of ourselves within us. And it's how do we, how do we find a place where we can find our center and be whole people and embrace all of this so that we can live and act in the world from a place of wholeness rather than from this fragmented set of selves that we have created. And I think social media um, is a mixed bag, just like everything else, because it has parts to it that are amazing. Technology is allowing us to have this conversation right now, sitting in uh, two different cities and it's allowed us during this pandemic to be in close communication and touch with people around the world that we love, that we have not been able to see or visit. And in some instances, it's actually brought people closer together because it's created a different way of communication. Um, and social media certainly has enabled us, when I was at Breakthrough, to reach millions and millions of people, right? The Bel Bajau campaign, Manke Manjiri, the campaigns that we create, and WhatsApp and all of these other ways in which we communicate also allows organizing. It allows, allows us to disseminate information about gender-based violence. And at the same time, there's pornography and Bollywood and all Bollywood is not bad, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. So, one of the things that we do um, at Breakthrough with young people is a lot of work around media and, and uh, social media and communications, because as you said, it's an, it's an important part of all of our lives. And so how we engage with it responsibly is something that we really need to be talking about. And because we use, because Breakthrough uses culture change as such a big part of its strategy, you know, social media is an important part of it. Having said all of that, there is then the side of social media that is, you know, 
people using it to prey upon others, uh, the, por the pornographic industry that preys upon kids and exploits kids is very challenging and very dangerous. The increasing surveillance of all of us by governments, the ways in which corporations track all of our data and information and sell it and capitalize it and make us more and more consumer oriented is a problem. I mean, there's a lot of things that I think as a society, we need to be having some big conversations about. And, you know, um, that's why I think the whole world should just meditate because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you really look at everything in total and you're like, how do I make a change? And I think, I think as you were speaking, I was actually having a realization for the first time that it's not about us trying to fix the whole world. I think sometimes when we are advocates for change, there's a, there's a notion somewhere recorded uh, that it has to end. Violence for all women have to end. And then we realize that we're impacting a percentage of that and we're still not satisfied. And I feel like maybe one of the things we need to look at is any contribution we make, however small or big, towards making humanity more golden, uh, then it's it's beneficial and, and it's a blessing. And let's not knock the fact that it's still difficult in getting rid of child predators or sex trafficking or violence against women. Okay, it's still there, but here's what we're doing. The story you told about that young lady who inspired her father to end up being an advocate to, you know, you don't have to marry your daughters off anymore. I mean, that was great. And yeah, I'm just having a realization as we're talking. I really love that. Um, as we come to a close of our show, um, there's a lot of beautiful ideas in the world. And I would love for you to share what your vision is of the future and how you actually see your tomorrows? Now I'm really focused on uplifting the paradigm of interconnectedness. I've spent decades working in the paradigm of separation, oppression, exploitation, and I feel like the more we can understand how deeply interconnected we all are, and not just with each other, but with our beautiful planet, and all beings on our planet, that we can stand in that truth and imagine a different way. So the work that I do now is around interconnectedness. The initiative is called Interconnected. And what I do is bring together self, community, systems, and the earth in a leadership approach. I work with social justice and other leaders around the world to find ways in which we can connect to those different quadrants within ourselves. And the self is just as important as anything that we're doing externally um, in the world, as you just pointed out. And so the, the uh, sort of vision that I have for interconnected and for my work is how do we create shared well-being for people and planet? It's as vast and as simple as that. And any and anything that any one of us can do and a sitting, a daily sitting practice that allows us to be more centered is just as important as running a campaign that reaches millions of people. 
And it's that entire spectrum. It's learning to play all 88 keys of the piano, as one of my teachers says, that I invite us all into um, in building this interdependent, interconnected world, which already is that and just needs us to open our eyes to it. Malika Dutch, you've been great. I'm going to take you through now what I call my spiritual rapid fire and see what's actually at the base of your personality. Ready? <laughs> sure. Ice cream or sorbet? Sorbet. Okay, well, the ocean or a park? The ocean. Coffee or tea? Tea. Smiling or laughing? Laughing. A book or a movie? A book. Meditation or jogging? Both. <laughs> Both. <laughs> Perfect. You've got it. Malika Dutt, you've been so beautiful. Thank you so much. We've actually ran over our time because everything that you were sharing in our conversation was just so important. We thank you so much and uh, continued blessings for the incredible work that is being done through you. I'm sure God's smiling on you every day. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed our chit chat with Malika Dutt. Please look at, look her up and find out some more information about her work and support some of the work that she's been doing. If you'd like to share a comment, don't forget to leave us a direct message on Epilogue or in America Meditating Radio. It's really our time to make the world into a better place. So thank you all so much for joining us today and please be well. 